Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us on this Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We are in installment number five of our year-end Three Martini Awards. The Crystal Martinis are going fast. Today and tomorrow are the final installments. We'll be off on New Year's Day and then back January 2nd. So, uh, Jim, today's the day we scrutinize the media from 2019. And we could spend hours talking about the horrific performance of the media in so many different dimensions this year. But we're going to limit it to three categories. Most overreported story of the year, most underreported story of the year, and the best story of 2019. So let's start with overreported. What tops your list? Uh, there's a whole lot in this one, Greg. And let's point out any day when you and I are going to spend it talking about the media, I actually had my spleen take steroids um, <laughs> just so I could vent it so much because, you know, there's just not enough bile in the world. Um, so it's become a cliche. I, I'm going to go with, I think, is a, a slam dunk. Uh, this was one I didn't even have a second category, which means you may be in trouble. Okay. Uh, because I just went with this one. The, the Russia collusion, collusion story. Um, it has become a cliche at this point that this the revelation of the Mueller report and the fact that he did not find evidence to uh, certainly not to confirm the most you know wild and crazy and hyperbolic ones the the Jonathan Chait New York Magazine cover story what if Trump has been a Russian agent since the 1980s yada 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 uh, no introspection no expression of regret no apology for for people's reputations the fact that MSNBC and in particular Rachel Maddow basically spent two and a half years of a prime time basically say believing they had proof of this and basically asserting they had proof of this. People build their reputations on this story. You could argue some people build their careers on this story. Um, yeah, there was some sort of a grand colluding conspiracy. And if they, as soon as Mueller was in it, if we know Mueller's going to find the goods, Mueller's going to get it. The Mueller prayer candles and the way Robert De Niro played him as the world's toughest guy. There was so much expectations. And then lo and behold, it wasn't there. And I think what this, there are a lot of things that are deeply frustrating about the way this uh, issue and story was covered from the beginning. But I think the most important aspect, and if, if I have any plea heading into the new year, Greg, I think in our political realm, a lot of the, certainly the loudest voices, and I think really a whole bunch of people who really ought to know better, have lost the ability to distinguish between different arguments that are critical of the other side. Okay? Listeners of this podcast know, I'm not always a fan of President Trump. A lot of days I'm really irked with him, right? President Trump is far too credulous in his dealings with Russia and Vladimir Putin, right? He, all, you know, he gives him a pass on all kinds of stuff. You almost never see him say anything critical of Putin when this is a president who criticized anybody, including members of his own cabinet in you know scathing <laughs> terms, right? He almost seems to see Putin as somebody he admires or envies. Okay? This is a bad trait in the president of the United States. But that does not mean that Trump must have been colluding with him or that he is some sort of agent of the Russian government. And right now in our politics, I think we have just far too many people who operate with the philosophy all bad things that I hear about, about those people that I disagree with, they must be true. And that's not the way the world works. Everyone you can't stand in politics probably has some good traits, and they're probably going to have some false accusations out there. And in this era of fake, you know, people like, I did this uh, earlier this year, I did this big uh, uh, presentation on social media disinformation, looking back at the 2016 campaign, what Russia did, uh, the Iranians were getting into this, some indication the Chinese are getting into this. Um, all of these different groups, and the question was, what are you know, what can we do about this? The biggest problem is that people want to believe it. 
right? People want to believe that everything they hear about their political opponents is true. They want to hear every rumor that suggests a lot of people who share this stuff don't care if it's true or not. They just want to get it out there because of the idea that this information might affect somebody else. So um, the Russia collusion story ended up doing exactly what Russia wanted, which is further dividing the American people. Uh, the media completely fumbled the ball on this. I, I think, in fact, they should have known better. They, they, all of their you know, skepticism or reporting instincts abandoned them. Um, and they have an unbelievable amount of egg on their faces. And so far, the indication, Greg, is that they learned absolutely nothing from the experience. Absolutely nothing, because uh, they're right back on it with the with the Ukraine story. And uh, they have absolutely no self-reflection when it came to the inspector general's report on FISA abuses, which uh, most of them dismissed as uh, complete conspiracy theories and so forth. You got a, a lot of folks on the right now saying, where's the apology to Devin Nunes? So, uh, yeah, absolutely. A, a lot, a ton of inks spilled on that story over the past couple of years, and uh, it did not amount to what they were expecting at all. Uh, another area where you can talk about uh, media overreach is on stories that shouldn't even exist in the first place. And then on top of that, they blow it up into something absolutely monumental, and it is even more aggravating. Let's go back to January of this year, what, a day or two after the March for Life, and a group from a Catholic high school in Covington, Kentucky, is in town. Uh, and before they head back to Kentucky, they're out seeing the sights. They stop at the Lincoln Memorial. American Indian uh, beating uh, on his drum and doing some chants uh, comes up to the kids and one of the kids stands there, doesn't say anything. Uh, some believe he has a smirk on his face, but the way that some of the pictures and some of the video looks like he might be a, in a confrontational mode. Uh, but if uh, an activist uh, beating on an Indian drum came up to a high school kid, that's not exactly front page news. But, oh, the kid's wearing a MAGA hat. Make America great again. So, therefore, all these projections are thrown onto this poor teenage kid from Covington who was the one approached, not the other way around. He wasn't blocking the path of the, of the guy pounding the drum. The guy on the, pounding the drum came up to him, as future videos proved in the case. And because of the fact he's wearing a MAGA hat, you've got people like Reza Aslan out there saying, have you ever seen a more punchable face? You got all these op-eds coming from the Washington Post and elsewhere, just pounding on white privilege and all this other stuff. And it turns out these kids they didn't say anything. He specifically said later that he tried not to make any sort of facial expression or say anything because he didn't know uh, what to do in that particular situation. But the media ran wild with it uh, about how Trump has corrupted our youth and our culture. And uh, this is somehow a racial incident. In the end, uh, this kid is suing. I think it's CNN and NBC and The Washington Post. And so far, these cases are allowed to proceed. I'm not sure how much they're going to get in damages, but to hopefully get these media outlets to pay a little bit of attention to facts rather than projecting their ideas onto everything, uh, this story should not be forgotten. Yeah, that's a really good choice there, Greg. It was a good revelation of just how much things that happen in the news, you know, there's, you could argue there was always a sense of beauties in the behind of the eye of the beholder. The camera only shows you some of what's happening at a particular event. Um, that there was always going to be a certain amount of subjectivity in how the media interpreted an event. Well, now everything's a Rorschach test, right? And now the loudest commentators bring so much baggage to everything that nothing can simply be as it is. It has to be represented as some sort of uh, grand allegory or some symbol of our time and our era. And, you know, uh, you know, 
and you know the, the existence of other factors and like that other protesters who was yelling at them and like, no no look i've got my narrative and i don't want to be interrupted and that's uh that's where we are, Greg, and it's one of those things. Where, like we, we've, uh, you could argue we are trying to function in this era without a media. That, you know, look, there's always been commentators, and you know, if you if you liked Eleanor Cliff, great. If you don't like her, fine, whatever. Um, but nonetheless, this is where we are now. Everybody is turned into a commentator. Everybody puts everything through their lens. A lot of people simply tune it all out and don't trust anyone, and that's not a good state for our democracy. Even if you don't, even if you don't, uh, ah, it just leaves me rambling and fuming, Greg. Let's move on then and uh, talk about the most underreported story of 2019. Jim, plenty of nominees there, too. Yeah. Um, with this one, uh, earlier this year in the Morning Jolt, I wrote, I came across 31 items of good news that were either completely, you know, drastically underreported or, or underreported from my perspective. A lot of good developments in health and the, the environment. But so all of those count. But one of them I decided to, to pick out and really put the spotlight on. This past September, for the first time in 70 years, the United States exported more crude oil and petroleum products than it imported in a day. Right now, you look back at that. Back in 2006, we were importing 13 million barrels each day. Okay? Now you may remember, you know, because, you know the the uh, the coverage was around the the 2006 midterms went very badly for the Republicans. Everybody meant, well, this is because we have a Texas oil man in the White House, and he's allowing oil companies to charge more. Nonetheless, there was this attitude of, okay, we are really in, in trouble, right? We were getting our oil from overseas. We're, you know, who, who are the oil-rich countries? Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Middle East, Kuwait, uh, Russia, Venezuela, right? None of these were good countries. <laughs> None of these were countries that were on our side and shared our values and shared our worldview. And in many cases, they were exporting values and a worldview and ideologies that were not good for us, that were, were generally opposed to us or arguably dangerous ideologies. And of course, what do, you know, what we found is in a situation where we're giving them money in order to keep our economy going because we needed oil, we needed gasoline, we needed all the things that come from oil. And there was this sense like we are really in deep doo-doo over this. And bit by bit, in large part because of the fracking revolution, a little bit of regulatory help. You know, the Obama administration was not a big help for this. But we kind of realized, hey, you know what? We're going to reduce our dependence on, on foreign oil. George W. Bush, in one of his State of the Union addresses, America is addicted to oil, right? Now, we hear promises from politicians all the time. We hear, you know, this is a big problem. We need to solve it. And it feels like nothing ever gets solved. And it's easy to get very <laughs> That's That's my oil breaking. That's my breaking of my patience of over this. Uh, this is a lesson of how I should not uh, hold plastic bottles on my desk because I'm making grand hand gestures. <laughs> um, so we were like really, you know, at this point, like, you know, wow, we have this really big problem. You know what, America? We solved it. From 2006 to now, we figured out how to get a lot more oil from territory we control. And we figured out how to get a lot more efficient with our cars. And we figured out how to frack a lot more natural gas. And we figured out a whole bunch of, like, we actually had a big problem in our lives and we fixed it. If we had audio here, I'd put in a round of applause. <laughs> we, we, should be, we should be very proud of this. There are countries that it seems like they never solve any of their problems. They always live with the same problems. This is a huge deal. And there are times where you look at this and say, okay, we've got problems with illegal immigration. We've got problems with poverty, opioid addiction. Hey, you know what? With enough time and enough patience, the right policies and hard work, we can solve problems, America. And I think we need more of that. And uh, I think one of the reasons people walk around with so much frustration and anger and depression and, all, and anxiety and all that stuff is that they don't hear enough about the success stories and the fact that we are now an oil exporter 
instead of being dependent upon Russia and Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and all these other not-so-friendly countries. You know, it's a huge deal. I wish we should hear a great deal more about that. Excellent point. And uh, you had a great jolt full, of, as you mentioned, of good news that hardly gets any attention, a lot of it on the medical front and and, and other ways, uh, but bad news and uh, coverage of Trump tweets, which could also be overrated coverage, is definitely an issue as well. All right, on to my choice for underreported story of the year. And this one uh, was tough also. I think I'm going to save one of my choices for a later award, but I'm going to go with coverage of the Virginia Democratic governor's scandal from late January, early February this year. Uh, Ralph Northam was already having a really bad week because this was around the time that uh, Democrats in deep blue states were pushing expansion of abortion legislation, essentially allowing an abortion for any reason right up to the moment of birth. He was asked about that on the local news station, and not only was he in favor of that, uh, he was talking about if a baby survives an abortion, you keep the baby comfortable while the parents and the doctor have a conversation. This is a baby who's no longer attached to the mother in any particular way. So uh, obviously talking about infanticide at that point. And so not to be outdone, I think it was the very next day, reports come out that Ralph Northam, the Democratic governor of Virginia, had a yearbook from the Eastern Virginia Medical School, class of 1984. And lo and behold, for the first time, uh, no one had noticed this before somehow, on his senior page, along with a few other normal-looking pictures, is a picture of a guy in blackface standing next to a guy in a Klansman costume with the hood over his head. And so this obviously goes viral. Uh, Ralph Northam isn't quite sure what to do, but he issues a statement on that Friday night explaining how deeply sorry he is that he took part in the picture. That photo and the racist and offensive attitudes it represents does not reflect that person I am today or the way that I have conducted myself as a soldier, a doctor, and a public servant. I am deeply sorry. I cannot change the decisions I made, nor can I undo the harm my behavior caused then and today. But I accept responsibility for my past actions and I'm ready to do the hard work of regaining your trust. Oh, but apparently you can undo the past because the very next day at a press conference, Northam says he's uh, searched his memory and realized, oh, actually, that wasn't me. I recognize that many people will find this difficult to believe. The photo appears with others I submitted on a page with my name on it. Even in my own statement yesterday, I conceded that based on the evidence presented to me at the time, the most likely explanation that it was indeed me in the photo. In the hours since I made my statement yesterday, I reflected with my family and classmates from the time and affirmed my conclusion that I am not the person in that photo. Jim, that just gets weirder and weirder every time I listen to it. How often are you in blackface or a Klansman outfit that, I'm not sure that is me after all, you know? I, uh, anyway, he talked about uh, wearing shoe polish for a Michael Jackson dance contest, came darn close to doing a moonwalk until his wife gave him the glare. And so it looked like Ralph Northam was gone after that disaster of a press conference. And at this point, the media is covering it. But then, magically, we get allegations against the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, that he sexually assaulted not one but two different women. 
And then, oh, by the way, to head off any controversy, the attorney general, Mark Herring, says, you know what? There's also pictures of me in blackface. I regret that, too. So guess what? There's no Democrat who can step in if Northam steps down. He decides he's staying. And at that point, the media stops caring. The story's dead. And by the time voters go to the polls in November, it's long forgotten. I I know we always play the what if it was a Republican game, Jim. But if it was a Republican, I don't think that that uh, that governorship continues. You know, Greg, I'm glad you mentioned this because just this past two weeks ago, I was at a holiday party, ran to a gentleman uh, who I, I had not met before, was, was on the right side of the spectrum, pretty well politically connected and lived in the state of Virginia. I'm about to share a rumor, folks. I mean, this is not reporting. This is not verified. This could very well be fake news, but it's a very intriguing theory. The argument was that when uh, Governor Northam gave that interview about abortion and went so far off message, and who basically said, you know, it, it indicated that the worst nightmare of pro-lifers, that yeah, that, that basically this was killing babies, that Democrats within the party were so terrified of having Northam, be, you know, go out and continue to make these kinds of arguments that the decision was made, take him out. And the argument was that some other Democrat had actually leaked the yearbook photo. That people had said that the reason you didn't hear Ed Gillespie's campaign managing to find this in the uh, uh, opposition research phase of the gubernatorial campaign is that all relevant copies of this yearbook, other than the one that was in that library, have been scooped up and gathered and secured by Ralph. I'm not sure how much I buy into this. But anyway, but the idea being that there were other Democrats who were so worried about Northam that they're like, you know what, let's take this guy out. This is too important. We'll have our new guy in charge of it who is much more... Uh, much smoother, doesn't doesn't blurt out the unpleasant truth the way that does, except Northam had done his own research on Justin Fairfax, and he had his uh, the, he knew about the accusations against him of sexual assault, and it was sort of turned into this Mexican standoff. I know you're not supposed to use that term anymore. This situation in which neither <laughs> you know neither one could uh, uh, take out the other. Uh, which is why all three and the Attorney General uh, Herring managed to survive as well. It's a really interesting theory. I, I don't have any way to disprove it. I don't necessarily see any proof to it. But, you know, it's the end of the year, and I just thought I'd put something fun out there. I don't think there's any doubt that Ralph Northam's behind the Justin Fairfax accusations being brought back to light. Somehow. Yeah, the timing of that was really <laughs> convenient for him. <laughs> no way. Because those women tried to get uh, attention during the campaign, or at least one of them did, and uh, the local media had zero interest in it. So the fact that they somehow stumbled back upon it at that exact moment, right when Northam's political... Oh, wait, fate this was... is newsworthy. <laughs> right. These witnesses are credible. Who saw that coming? Crazy times, crazy times. But uh, hey, once he decided to stay, the media didn't care anymore. And uh, that just shows where the media line up on this issues. Because uh, if one had to go, they all had to go. And then the Republican Speaker of the House at the time would have become governor, and no matter what the Democrats have done, we can't have that. Yeah, my favorite was the New York Times story. It came out like two or three months ago. Strangely, the scandal has not had many severe consequences for Governor North. Gee, how did that happen? (laughs) Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that, you know, media like the New York Times lost interest in the story, you know? Well, let's talk about happier things. Jim, what's the best story of 2019? Oh, you know, um, I could say the best fictional story came in the form of Between Two Scorpions, but I won't. <laughs> um, but it's still available on Amazon, if you like. Uh, no, I think the, the biggest story, and it's kind of the, the, the culmination of a multi-year story. Uh, the death of Abu Bukhar al-Baghdadi this fall was a big deal. I realized it was like a 72-hour news story, and then we all decided to move on to the, 
the usual partisan politics stuff. But um, look, that's a very big deal because it kind of is an exclamation point on, I would argue, certainly the end of the Islamic State and debatably, I mean, as of this recording, the end of ISIS, certainly ISIS as a menace that keeps us awake at night. Uh, are there still followers of ISIS around the globe? Yes. Are there still Islamist extremists around the globe? Sure. We're probably never going to see the day when there's not a single person who adheres to the jihadist worldview walking this earth. But we're not really frightened of them anymore. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time. We're not getting these videos. We're not getting, you know, the Islamic State does not rule any territory. They are not uh, having mass executions. They're, they're not doing all that stuff that absolutely scared the bejesus out of us in that second term of Obama. And, you know, the, the, all of the different attacks they inspired, both in, you know, the, the San Bernardino, Orlando mass shooting, we really lived in fear of ISIS for a long stretch. Now, this didn't just happen in 2019. This was a long and gradual fight. The majority of the credit to Iraqi defense forces, to the Free Syrian Army, the Kurds, who we pretty much abandoned this year, um, various other forces. But certainly U.S. airstrikes played a role in that. The U.S. coalition, good intelligence work, good military work. And now ISIS is leaderless and I think you arguably a non-entity on the world stage. Certainly nothing like what they were just a couple of years ago. This is a big deal. It's enormously important. And I think, like I said, just like the good news about the U.S. gradually getting energy independence, we have very gradually gotten rid of this thing that really terrified us just a few years ago. And you don't see people walking around feeling significantly happier. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes things get better and you don't really appreciate it. Uh, but just because of the fact that you're not thinking about something that used to cause you a great deal of, of stress and fear and anxiety and all that. Excellent choice. I literally grimaced when you said it, not because it was a bad choice, but because it was also my choice. But uh, <laughs> it, it's absolutely significant. It's uh, just as significant as, uh, in, in some ways, as the taking out of bin Laden. Obviously, ISIS wasn't able to inflict uh, as much uh, carnage on our country and on our people as Al Qaeda was. So the bin Laden story is bigger. But it's similar in terms of what these two people wanted to achieve in terms of building a caliphate uh, that stretched really uh, from the Mediterranean all the way to Indonesia. So, I mean, this is uh, uh, obviously a dream that was pretty far-fetched, but it got a lot further along than it should have. You can obviously go back to the full withdrawal of uh, all U.S. forces from Iraq at the end of 2011. Whether Obama created ISIS, as Trump claimed in the campaign, uh, is a bit of a stretch, obviously, but certainly the conditions uh, and the vacuum uh, of a, a strong presence there uh, facilitated that to a certain extent. For my official choice, then, since we agree on this, people who are willing to make great sacrifices in their yearning to either keep or secure their freedom, uh, whether it's Hong Kong, where there's a holdover of rights that they had while under British control and over 50 years in this transition time between British and full Chinese control, uh, they were supposed to keep those rights. The Chinese have been trying to chip away. And this year, the Hong Kong residents said, absolutely not. We're taken to the streets. It's not just about this extradition bill. We see what you're doing here. And we are going to demand that that stop right now. Uh, the, the protests still go on. The Chinese are getting more fed up with it. And we know how the Chinese are capable of putting down protests. We'll see if that actually happens. But the, uh, the persistence of the uh, Hong Kong protesters is certainly an inspiration. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we don't have as many pictures because of the media blackout and the Internet outage in Iran. 
but you've got thousands and thousands of people in over 100 cities marching in the streets there. Uh, Parts of it's economic and uh, how the country there is crumbling due to sanctions and their own corruption. Uh, but these people know that they uh, risk their own lives, and hundreds of them, perhaps over a 1,000, have been killed, depending on which source you believe. Thousands more injured, thousands more beyond that, unjustly imprisoned. They're willing to risk everything for freedom. Uh, it's something that uh, we often take for granted here, but in Hong Kong and Iran and in other places around the world this year, uh, people have either said enough or uh, we're just going to do what it takes and uh, give everything we can uh, in the pursuit of freedom. So kudos to them. Another good choice, Greg. You know, here's the thing. I know it's frustrating when we pick the same thing, but when we, when you know, your choice, your second choice always makes me think, mm, you know, I should have picked that one too. <laughs> Lots of good choices for each of these categories this year. Um, and of course, uh, we, we leave on a, on a high note with uh, some positive uh, stories with the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. I remember uh, several years ago where uh, your best story of the year was the death of tyrants. It was Kim Jong-il and Muammar Gaddafi. And I'm not sure that was the same year that Hugo Chavez died, but uh, uh, you get the point. But uh, We had a good run. Good run back then. <laughs> good deaths. Good deaths. Yes. And so that, uh, that cleans the palate a little bit after a, a truly horrific year on the part of the mainstream media. I mean, we say that every year. Uh, but uh, I can't even count how many times this year we were almost literally banging our heads against the desk. Not a Joe Biden, literally, but uh, quite, quite close on a lot of days. So, Jim, I'm sure the media will only get worse in 2020. and We'll have plenty to chronicle in this particular awards show next year. So uh, in the meantime, we'll talk to you again tomorrow for New Year's Eve. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Really glad you were with us today. Let us know on Twitter or elsewhere what you think of our choices and what your choices are for these awards for 2019. And then join us on Tuesday for our final award session of 2019 and the biggest awards of all, Person of the Year and Turncoat of the Year, as well as our fearless predictions for 2020. Tune in then for the next Three Martini Lunch.